Now, now shall I tell of things, things that change? That change. New being out of old. Since you, O oh gods, O oh gods, created mutable, created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts, arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting. The shifting. The shifting story of the world. Start by heading west. Go as long and far as you can, past the place where the sun dies. Eventually, you'll come to the end of the world. There's a river there that you need to cross if you can manage it, if you have payment for your passage. Beyond, you'll find the landscape turns gloomy, fields where shadows wander as plentiful as weeds. They drift among the tall grasses that shiver and ripple ahead of you like a dying sea. The shadows whisper, a thousand strange, unfamiliar languages muttering and, sometimes, weeping under a sunless sky. Some of them whisper rumors of other lands, regions where the great in life are rewarded with a slightly brighter kinder existence than these gray fields have to offer. Some say there are even apples, orchards of them as far as the eye can see. You don't remember the last time you felt hungry. You don't remember what apples taste like. But lest your pale heart turn envious, other rumors flutter past your ears. You hear whispers of a darker place. A place of torment and punishment, a prison for monsters, a region where the wicked in life are repaid for their evil. Terrible things are endured there, you're told, and the stories that are whispered would chill your blood if you still had any. Where can you go from here? There's some comfort in that, being at the bottom, being at the end. You can't get any lower, except by going lower. Part of you, you know, part of you knows you deserve it. Not the apple, the pit. So awful are the tales of that place of torment that you consider drinking from one of the streams that runs through the pale lands. One of them, it's told, will wash away all memory of your former life all your dreams and follies, all those terrible things you did, all forgotten with just a sip. Maybe if you do, no one will ever know what you once were. No one will ever find out what you did. Even you won't remember. Maybe you will be free at last as well. Maybe. Talk about drinking to forget. If you only knew which stream to drink from, because there's another one, a bitter poison draft, they say, every mouthful burns, but never refreshes or purifies. Imagine that. Imagine being poisoned, but never dying, 
always dying. You're not alone. There are others, of course. The pale shadows that drift and whisper, well, you're one as well, after all. Sometimes you wonder why you're here. You weren't the worst person ever, or else you'd be in that pit everyone whispers about. But apparently, you weren't one of the best, either. Or else you'd be in one of the brighter regions. The ones everyone gossips about. Some say that the favored few who are can even return if they want to. They can be reborn into a new life above. Given what you remember of your life, you're not sure you see the point. Besides, who decides anyway? Why do some drown in darkness while others feast in golden orchards? And who decided to stick you here in the fallow fields of the dead? It's not fair if you think about it. Nobody told you the rules when you were alive. If you had known, maybe you would have done things differently. I mean, who makes the rules anyway? Who decides these things? Who's in charge around here? The moment you whisper the question, you feel a throbbing in your ears. A faint breeze washes past you, stale and warm. You see a shadow moving through the grass, taller and darker than any other ghost. Hades, the unseen lord of this realm. You feel a chill ripple through your form, even insubstantial as it is, and you shiver, watching the shadows stride away across the fields. And it occurs to you, for the first time, that he is as much a prisoner of this place as you are. Hades, always alone, stuck here, same as you. You almost feel sorry for him. You shiver again. Hades. The very name has become synonymous with hell and damnation. The god himself is a powerful image in popular culture. Novels, video games, movies, even heavy metal albums all depict him as a cruel, terrible, even diabolical villain. Much of what developed into the Judeo-Christian mythology of hell over the ages was conflated with the realm of Hades, even to the point where Hades and Satan have become interchangeable. This is all relatively recent, of course, just a few hundred years or so. But looking backwards, we can see a much more nuanced and even noble character. Some would say, and I am one of them, that Hades is one of the more honorable gods in the Olympian pantheon. Certainly, compared to the antics of his brothers, he compares much more favorably. Which doesn't mean that Hades wasn't feared in the ancient world. As the lord of the underworld, god of the dead, the living had a healthy fear of him in his realm, even to the point where it was considered bad luck to speak his name or even think upon him too much, lest he be present. Speak of the devil, the devil appears. Not an unreasonable fear. After all, this is a god who has a helmet which renders him invisible, 
you never know where he might be, after all. Some scholars believe that's why we have so few stories from antiquity about Hades. People were inclined not to put too much thought into his exploits or his character, lest he take notice of them. Although, what might happen if he did? Well, that's left unspoken, unrecorded. He's a bit of a cipher in most of the stories. When he's mentioned, if he's mentioned at all, it is to invoke the shadow of the underworld and death. Which is to say, it's understandable why he might not have been a popular god in ancient days. Somewhere along the way, his name became synonymous with the underworld itself, which in turn became synonymous with the Christian hell. Another set of those ripples I talk so much about moving from one story to another, washing back over the original tale, transforming it. Nonetheless, Hades is still Hades. Speak of the devil. The devil appears. As the lonely king of a lonely land, is it any wonder he might have wanted a companion? His solitary work recalls somewhat the labors of Jacob, working seven years to win his bride, or, perhaps more appropriately, the lonely first man in the book of Genesis, Adam, hard at work in Eden, and yet alone. And when God notices, he brings him a companion. I admit, it's somewhat of a stretch, but I stand by it. Adam is, after all, made out of the earth, the realm of Hades. As I said before, Hades is an admittedly ambiguous character, not surprising giving his penchant for invisibility. Now, the invisibility is an important element for Hades. Most stories seem to equate this power of his to a magic helmet he possesses. Later writers, the Greeks and Romans, assert that the helmet was a gift from his monstrous uncles, the Cyclops, and thank for his help in defeating Kronos and freeing them from their imprisonment and Tartarus. But you all know by now what weight I tend to give to those later stories. Although, following my own rules, you are free to choose what you want to believe. And, truth be told... I can't find another source or rationale for where he gets his powers of invisibility from. But that's not going to stop me from speculation. Kronos devoured his children one by one as they were born, fearing that they would one day overthrow him as he overthrew his father, Uranus. Ancient writers often omit Hades from the list of gods. It's unclear why. Did they exclude him from the ranks of the Olympians because of the taboo against speaking his name? Or was he left out sometimes because he was from an older, pre-Hellenic cult? Who knows? Either way, I think Hades is generally viewed to be the oldest son of Kronos and Rhea. He's younger than Hestia, hashtag household god, and I imagine, I speculate, that after his birth, once Kronos devoured him, his mother might have asked to see him. And maybe Kronos replied, trying to hide his guilt, 
Oh, um, he's invisible? Hey, I told you it was all speculation. Regardless, however it comes about, Hades has the power of invisibility. Although it's not quite clear why he does, or why he would want it. It's a singular characteristic, quite different from most of the other gods. Many of them change their form at will. Hades chooses to hide his. Out of sight, out of mind. Just like the dead. Just like the titans imprisoned. Hades might as well be dead or imprisoned himself, despite all of his dutiful devotion to his responsibilities. But imagine, as lonely as he had been, imagine that moment when hope first woke up within him. However it came about, imagine when he realized that he might not be alone any longer. Imagine being afraid to trust in the promise of his brother, afraid it might turn out to be another trick, another bait and switch to keep him in his place. And when he finally dared to let himself believe, let that little ray of hope into his dark world, imagine how scared he must have been. He'd been alone for so long, and unlike his brothers, Hades never had much of a reputation as a ladies' man. Which is not to say he didn't crave a companion, someone to share his darkness. I'm sure he did his best to make the place presentable, if he even thought about it at all. Honestly, Hades seems to me like the sort of guy who wouldn't think of it until he was carrying his bride over the threshold and suddenly saw the place through her eyes. The dark hallways, the cold, staring statues, the echoing murmurs of the dead, nothing living, nothing green, nothing warm. He might have been surprised by her tears. Standing there in the entryway of the house, his hands limp at his sides while she weeps, apologizes, weeps again, and then asks to go to her chambers. Marriage is never easy, at least not always, not right away. And when you have two unexperienced people coming together or being forced together under arranged circumstances, well, you're bound to have tears, misunderstandings, and early heartache. For her part, Cora missed her mother. She missed the bright and vibrant world above. Bringing her to this dark and lonely place was like transplanting a daffodil into the basement of a mortuary. And Hades, who knows? Imagine his confusion, his naive assumption that the dark wonders of his realm had any appeal for a warm heart from the upper world. Some of the tales have her homesick and miserable, wandering through the palace for days. And when her husband finally thinks to ask, she unburdens her heart and tells him of all the things she misses. But most of all, she tells him, I just miss the flowers. And like any husband trying, however misguidedly, to please his wife, he does the best he can. 
He brings her flowers, well, the closest thing in his realm. For all the jewels that grow under the earth are his. But a bouquet, even a bouquet of diamonds and rubies and sapphires, it's still a cold and lifeless thing to what the daughter of Demeter remembers so fondly. Who knows how long this went on? Who knows what Hades tried to do to cheer up his bride? Did he bring in the shades of the dead to perform, the finest musicians and dancers who ever lived, their pale forms moving like cave paintings in firelight, their instruments and voices echoing in the empty ballroom of the palace? Did he line the walls of her chambers with paintings and tapestries, the finest the dead could create, all to bring back the color and warmth that she was so desperate for? Or did he, at last, finally think to send to the upper world and bring back cuttings and saplings and seeds, clearing away a section of the gray asphodel and installing her own private meadow there, a bright square of warmth and life in that gray quilt of a world. Who's to say? And was there one moment, or many, that finally pierced the gloom shrouding Cora's heart? A realization, when she felt something sound deep in her, a response, an echo, however faint at first, to all his care and attention. What's the moment? when he became, at last, her husband, when she became his wife, when she became Persephone. Who's to say? I know how far I'm straying from the source material here. I know I'm adding my own ideas and perspective to the mix, making little ripples of my own across the surface of the story. I can't help it. These are the gods I know. And knowing that the earliest pre-Hellenic origins of Persephone do not cast her as a helpless victim or an abducted child, but rather as a kind and mighty sovereign, sharing the throne and duties of her husband, a bright light in the shadow, a kind comforter of the newly dead. Persephone, that's the God I know and love. Now, Let's take a few minutes to talk about this business of the pomegranate. There are at least three versions of the pomegranate story, and I'm sure you know at least one of them already. The most commonly known version tells us that Hades either tricks or forces Cora to eat the seeds of the pomegranate. The number of seeds varies depending on which version of the story, but the amount she eats corresponds to the amount of time Persephone is doomed to remain in the underworld each year. Three seeds, three months. Six seeds, six months. In at least one version, Hades persuades her to eat a little something. You look hungry in a move strikingly reminiscent of the serpent tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. And remember, in that story, the forbidden fruit was from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. According to the story, Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden for one simple reason. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's God talking there, by the way. There were two trees they weren't supposed to touch. They ate from the tree of knowledge first, and they were thrown out before they could eat from the second tree and become, essentially, gods. Tradition says it was an apple, but that's not in the Bible. And yet, an apple has come to represent knowledge. Think different. The Eden story is an interesting contrast to the Greek myths. In those stories, if you eat the fruit in the underworld, you have to stay. In the Hebrew myths, if you eat the fruit, you have to leave. It's also interesting to note that the word pomegranate quite literally means apple palm of Grenada. Now, Grenada gives us all manner of words. Grenade, for instance, all those deadly pips. Garnet, those blood-red jewels. So the word pomegranate pretty much literally means red apple. Some people believe the pomegranate was the fruit in the Garden of Eden, but I digress. Another version of the story contends that Hades flicked a pomegranate seed into Korah's mouth as Hermes was leading her back to Olympus. Yeah, he flicked it. He flicked the seed. You heard me. Keep your dirty comments to yourself. But one version that stands out among the others is one in which Cora eats the fruit on purpose, either because she is hungry or because she is persuaded by Hades. Either way, it's of her own accord. In that version, it seems... She doesn't want to leave her husband. Some say it is because Hades makes a compelling case for her to stay. Go, Persephone. Go to your mother, the one with the dark robe. Have a kindly disposition and passion in your breast. Do not be too upset, excessively so. I will not be an unseemly husband to you in the company of the immortals. I am the brother of Zeus, the father. If you are here, you will be queen of everything that lives and moves about, and you will have the greatest honor in the company of the immortals. And so he spoke, and high-minded Persephone rejoiced. That's from the Homeric hymn to Demeter. A few of the books and articles I've read make the case that Hades does something unprecedented in ancient culture. He acknowledges the individuality and freedom of his wife, and he grants her an equal share in his kingdom. The opinion is that this demonstrates Hades' nobility and the depth of his love for her, and she recognizes it and rejoices. Now, some say she didn't need persuading. She was going to stay anyway because she fell in love. That's what I was told, at least, by a waitress in a diner, and she would know better than anyone. It probably won't surprise you to know that that's the version that resonates the most with me. For me, 
It provides the most balance of all the disparate versions, without conflicting too much on the details. And giving Persephone, and I think we can all agree that from this point forward, when she eats the pomegranate, Cora is no longer the maiden, but now the queen of the underworld. And giving her that agency represents not only her power and resonance in the world of myth, but it also acknowledges the original stories from which all these myths originate, in which she chooses to go to the underworld and celebrates in her role as the ruler and comforter of the dead. Which is all well and good, but it gets me no closer to a little thing that's been nagging at me this whole time. Why a pomegranate? In all my reading and research, I can't say I've gotten any closer to a definitive, verifiable answer to that question. We know that in the ancient world, the pomegranate represented wealth and abundance because of the multitude of seeds it contains, which makes the tie-in to Hades make more sense. The god the Romans called Pluto, or Rich One. It's a fairly clear connection. All those red jewels below the surface just like his realm. In addition, all around the world, in cultures throughout history, the pomegranate somehow symbolizes life and death. Somehow, this particular fruit has deep, primal associations for humanity, springing up around the world as a universal, if not collective, symbol of the ongoing, iterative mortality of our species. I have seen suggestions from scholars that this association with death comes from the taboo regarding the color red. Robert Graves asserts that the red food in the ancient world was offered only to the dead, or possibly that the dead only eat red food. His phrasing isn't exactly clear. But I've also read that the story of Persephone eating the pomegranate has its origins in Sumerian mythology with the goddess Sheol, which of course became another name for the underworld. And a number of scholars I read claim that the pomegranate was originally connected with the triple goddess of the Aegean, a triune goddess that over time became Hera. As I understand it, in one of her earliest forms, Hera was a death goddess and was often depicted with a pomegranate in her hand. This was before she went on to become the goddess of marriage, childbirth, and fidelity, and the wife of Zeus. So this sets up an interesting symmetry between the rulers of the underworld and the rulers of Olympus, Hades and Persephone, Zeus and Hera, some sources I read make a very strong case for the origin of the spike crown that we all associate with kings and queens. They say that that spiked crown originated from the spiked calyx, which we find at the base of every pomegranate. And Hera is one of the first and few gods to wear that spiked crown. But again, why a pomegranate? What is it about that particular fruit that puts it into such a special relationship with the Chthonic gods? We know its earliest associations are with life and death all over the world. 
With its numerous seeds, it naturally represents fertility. And, as I said earlier, the color red has long been associated with death and with life. If you think about it, it is the color of blood, after all. I was thinking about this for a number of days, and finally I thought to ask the smartest person I know what she thought. My wife thought for a moment, and then she did what she always does. She pointed out the obvious truth that was right there in front of me. I had all the components, but I missed the one thing that brings it all together. The pomegranate is a symbol of life and death because it captures both together in a single form. You have the seeds, those white, bitter seeds, suspended in the strikingly rich red juice. The seed, in Latin, semen, and in Greek, sperma. The seeds are suspended, surrounded by blood. A suspension, a capsule containing life and death together. Love and death, semen and blood. It's worth noting in those older times, feminine fertility was something of a mystery. This is, I believe, why we had goddesses and why all our earliest cultures were primarily matriarchal. The ability to create life, to bring it forth from your own body, to make life in your image, this was a mystery, and they didn't quite get the concept of paternity at that point in history. So, as a mystery, it was revered and worshipped. To make life in your own image, only the gods do such things. And here was the pomegranate, the perfect metaphor of life and death, perfectly balanced together in the hand of the goddess of the underworld. I would go deeper in and talk about the pomegranate and its symbolism in Christianity, specifically how it came to be associated with Jesus Christ, but I've strayed far from the path already, I know, and I'm sorry for it. Maybe we'll cover that in our next dark episode. Let's get back to it then. After Demeter's lamentations have plunged the world into chaos and suffering, Zeus finally relents and sends his son Hermes to fetch back Korah from the underworld. And what Hermes found there is, like so much else in the story, somewhat open to debate. Some say he found Persephone there, forlorn and bereft, weeping still for her mother, begging to return to the upper world. Others say that he found that the underworld had a new celebrity power couple sharing the throne together, king and queen, hand in hand, ruling side by side. Either way, Hermes was there under orders from Zeus to bring her home. Hades makes no objection though I believe he would have been in the right if he had. And despite his reputation, his reaction is remarkably obedient and mild. Who knows what he might have been thinking as he watched his wife led away, up and out of his world, maybe forever. Was he sad to see her go? Relieved, maybe, that now he could get back to work, had the constant presence of another taxed his introverted nature and he needed time to recharge? I may be projecting on that last one a wee bit. 
Or was he smug and scheming, stroking his ever-so-diabolical Van Dyke, knowing she'd be back, she had to come back, thanks to the pomegranate? And by that token, what did Persephone think? Was she relieved? Did she weep with joy at her rescue? Or did she look back like poor Orpheus? Did she feel a tug inside, a bright and shining cord that connected her to her husband, to her love, a cord that grew ever tighter around her chest with every step she took? Regardless, the reunion on Olympus is a joyful one, though there is a shadow cast over it all. Whether by choice or by trickery, there's no arguing the point. If you consume the food of the dead, you are bound to the underworld. It's a law of the fates, the morai, the powers that which even the gods have to submit to. If there is a natural order to the world, then the fates are the underlying DNA. Their laws are the source code for nature itself. And Demeter, a goddess of natural law herself, cannot dispute this. I told you that was going to be important later, didn't I? I bet you thought I forgot. But a compromise is somehow reached. Some versions of the story have Zeus at the center of the negotiation, but Persephone is permitted to divide her time between her mother and her husband. Demeter continues to grieve while her daughter is gone, and nature suffers the consequences. Interestingly enough, there's nothing to suggest that Hades has a similar sulky effect on his realm when his wife is gone. He remains steadfast in his duties, reliable and responsible, without any of that self-absorbed, dare I say, petulance that Demeter wallows in. I realize I'm being unfair. As I said in our last episode, the loss of a child is a shattering blow from which no parent emerges unchanged. If something happened to one of my kids, I'd plunge the world into darkness too. If there's any comfort in the story for Demeter, it is in knowing that her daughter will always return. But she also knows her daughter loves her husband. And she knows that her daughter when she is home, will be pining for her husband. Always. And that's where I land. Ultimately, insanely, it's back where I started. With the romantic, idealized version of Persephone and Hades, somehow, in all of the chaos and darkness, finding love and light in each other. But... On one hand or another, all versions of this story are unsatisfying to someone, even me. They feel incomplete. There are pieces that are missing or don't quite fit together. And some elements just don't resonate with the same strength as other ones. Every version of the story has a disconnect built into it, a gap, something missing. And... However beautiful the story is, there are sour notes here and there that can't be denied. That's to be expected. 
No text is perfect, and certainly not one assembled over thousands of years by countless imperfect hands from who knows how many imperfect sources. But there's more to it, maybe. Maybe these texts feel incomplete because the key element that's missing is us. From generation to generation, these stories travel along inside us, and as they move through us, not only are we changed, but so too are they changed. In the ecosystem of the imagination, we share an important symbiotic role. The story of Persephone and Hades is a complicated, conflicted one. It has fear, anger, joy, disappointment, love, wonder, and reconciliation. No surprise there, it is, after all, the story of a courtship and a marriage. And those are never easy. Or, put it another way, it's a story. And stories are never easy. They can be unruly, impatient, even rebellious, for writers and readers alike. The way that stories move and adapt through the years, the way they change to suit their environment, in their medium, our minds, the way they change us in the process, it's almost as if they're living things. That in this larger ecosystem, we may not be the hosts in this symbiotic relationship. In ancient times, it was widely accepted that the realm of Hades shared a common border with two other regions, those of dreams and imagination. Some of us still believe this, even in these modern enlightened times. We still believe in these realms. After all, they share a common and easily crossed border with our own. We know how easily the dead move between dreams and imagination. We've seen the free flow of stories from the dreaming world to the waking world. And we experience, sometimes, firsthand, how easily it is to traverse into their world from ours. Hades was called the Lord of Dreams as well as the Lord of the Dead, after all. I've strayed again from the topic at hand, I know, but I always find myself returning to these ideas that these stories, our stories, our gods, are just as real as anything else in this world. That we ourselves are, for all of our material aspirations and assertions, nothing more than stories ourselves. If you've ever lost a loved one, if you've ever been to a funeral, you know what I mean. All that's left of us once we've passed on are our stories, echoes of our lives resonating in the memories and dreams of those we leave behind, ripples that spread from us to others in our life, moving on even as we have moved on. I can try as best I can to relate the history of the story of Hades and Persephone. I can try to find the source, that first stone cast into the pond from which all the ripples spread. Something solid, deep below the surface, something I can bring back and hold in my hand and say to you all, here, I found it, here it is. 
but it's too deep. The ripples have spread too far, and honestly, I don't have the lung capacity for so deep a dive. But really, what does it matter? Why put all this effort in after so many others before me? Maybe it's time to stop diving and just lay back on the surface and drift along downstream like a leaf sliding among the ripples. Just let the dark current of all of this carry me along wherever the story leads. These stories move us, and we move them. A couple of days ago, I got a very nice message on Facebook. A young man wrote to me to thank me for taking on this particular story, as it was one that was personally resonant for him. These gods, in particular, Persephone and Hades, are close to his heart, familiar and even affectionate. He wrote to me to tell me how he proposed to his fiancée just a month ago. When the time came, when he was ready, he didn't organize a flash mob or create a YouTube video. No, not at all. He bought a pomegranate. It seems they were at a festival together. It was on an evening when people came dressed as gods, and, of course, she was Persephone, and he was her Hades. So when the time came, when he was ready to ask, he gave her the pomegranate. This is what he wrote to me. I told her to eat 12 seeds, and then I proposed, and she said yes. This kills me. I love this. I love them. It's so goddamn beautiful on so many different levels. First of all, how awesome is that for a proposal? That's big-time mythology nerd game right there, no denying. And they were dressed as Persephone and Hades. It's true, he sent me a photo, and it's awesome. Because it's not mine. It's not my Persephone and Hades. But it's theirs. They have found their gods, and they have found each other. And honestly, it fills me with so much joy to see them together because they're lovely together. She's there with flowers in her hair. She's lovely and patient, and at her side he stands close to her in black, his face shadowed by a mask with a dark crown. And in his hand, the pomegranate is bright and heavy with all the years ahead of them. I love these echoes that run through our lives, pulling us this way and that on the currents of mythology. I'm sorry if I spend too much time dissecting and analyzing these stories. I know it can be tiresome. But however far I go, however deep I dive, however convoluted my diversions are, I know that somewhere deep below it all, Persephone sits on her throne, one hand on her husband's arm, and the other upraised in the darkness to serve as a beacon, a lighthouse for the newly dead, guiding them to a place where they will be welcomed, a place where they can leave all their sorrow and cares behind and at last find peace. A kind-hearted queen who brings light into the dark realm of her husband and her king, 
a sweet and generous girl who knows what it is to be frightened, who knows what it is to be a stranger lost in these shadows, and who is there to welcome you and, at last, bring you home. That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website, find out more how you can support the show, tell your friends, write a review on iTunes, link to us on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else fine podcasts are plugged. But most of all, thank you for listening. Now, be well, take care of each other, and may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, distributed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced in any format or medium without his express written permission. Violators will suffer terrible fates over long years as the slow curse of the gods takes root in their lives and poisons the very foundations of all they have tried to build. Join us online at findyourgods.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com and we're even on Pinterest. Because, you know, why not?